Hello, friends. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Hope everybody's doing good. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Hotshot Brewery. They make some excellent coffee. I don't know if you guys have tried it yet, but go over there and get yourself some. They got the Spotfire blend, the Scratch Line blend, the Initial Attack, and they got their new line, the Sawdust blend. Hell, they even have five-pound bags of coffee with your name on them. So go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full line of apparel, all of their coffee roasts, and all their tools of the trade to get your morning going. It's good coffee for a good cause, and a portion of the proceeds go to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. Go check them out. Don't drink crap coffee. Another sponsor of the podcast is going to be the Smoky Generation also known as the American Wildfire Experience. So go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check them out. Basically what it is is an oral history and digital storytelling project for firefighters, wildland firefighters, both past and present. It's pretty cool. Some of these stories even date back to the 1940s. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Bethany's got an excellent organization over there, and she helps our writers or bloggers, photographers, cinematographers in the field with some micro grants. Yeah. 2020 is going to be announced soon. So you guys have an opportunity to win one of those micro grants. Uh, Smoky Generation has also teamed up with Mystery Ranch and Water Axe Pumps to uh, help facilitate some of these grants for both our Canadian and American wildfire fighters. It's awesome. Check them out. www.smoky.com wildfireexperience.org Bethany, you got an awesome organization. Keep doing what you're doing. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast, episode number 19. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's getting into their winter routines. And I hope everybody's enjoying their time off. It's well-deserved. Live it up. Today on the show, I've got Alex K. Potter. I don't know if you guys have seen her running around on Instagram, but she has one hell of a story to tell. She is a conflict zone photojournalist, an itinerant RN. What is that, you ask? Well, she's a trauma nurse. And she's a wildland firefighter. So she has an epic story to tell, particularly one about Yemen, particularly one about Iraq, specifically during the battle for Mosul against ISIS forces. She was over there with a nonprofit organization doing some humanitarian aid and helping injured civilians get to definitive care. It's pretty wild. She's seen some uh, pretty insane stuff, as you can imagine, being in a conflict zone, but Another interesting thing is, is she used wildland fire to help facilitate her healing process. Yeah, pretty wild. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, episode number 19 with Alex K. Potter. 
Welcome to the Anchor Point. All right, let me turn that down right there. That can go flying over there. All right, you ready to do this? Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got Alex Potter. What's up, dude? Dudette? Not much. It's going great. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island right now. So Yeah, how's that treating you? Far, far from the west. Not yeah. snowing. That's nice. Yeah, Oregon's getting some snow right now. My buddy sent me a picture, and it's just snowing like crazy on the 97. Yeah, I left Idaho about two weeks ago just to avoid so lucky me yeehaw yeehaw so tell us a little bit about yourself tell us about your fire background uh so i'm pretty new to fire this year was my my second year um working on an engine in idaho uh, with a really rad crew and yeah most of the fires i've done have been in region four so i haven't gotten to travel too much throughout the west for that but i've have really awesome experiences and fire was kind of a great way for me to uh strangely decompress after time overseas um doing some journalism and some nursing so yeah and and from your story it sounds like you've uh seen some of the absolute horrors of humanity which is pretty crazy it struck my interest in like some of your uh photos on instagram it's pretty wild what you've experienced over there so tell us a little bit about that like what 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 got you into fire what was like the I guess the uh, lead up to that, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a, I mean, I've been working in the Middle East since 2012 as a photojournalist, mostly in Yemen and Iraq, um, covering politics, conflict, um, humanitarian crises, et cetera. Um, but I'm also a nurse. So during that time, I'd always come back to the States and do short travel contracts, um, but in 2016, I went to Iraq to cover the battle for Mosul, which is basically Iraqi and Kurdish forces with the international coalition trying to retake uh, one of the largest cities in northern Iraq from ISIS, the terrorist group. Um, but when I got there, there were many, many talented and dedicated journalists already there and very few frontline responders um, to deal with civilian casualties. So I figured my nursing skills would be more useful uh, in that time than my journalism ones. Uh, so I found a group of medics who were working directly with the Iraqi special operations medics. Uh, we made a deal with them to, uh, if you guys bring us civilians, we'll help treat your soldiers as well. So that morphed into us uh, creating this medical nonprofit uh, where we treated civilians for about a year uh, in Mosul. So after that, I was very burnt out, I guess. Um, dealing with a lot of the trauma from that. And, you know, some people decompress on the beach, go scuba diving, go hiking, whatever. But I kind of decompress through physical labor and suffering, (laughs) I guess. Um, And so I was, I guess I was looking for something that was, that had that similar uh, camaraderie as you find in the medical field or in a military field. Um, I've never been in the military um, but I was looking for something that was physical and very cohesive uh, to just learn something new and get a break from the medical side. So I heard about fire and I applied. That's kind of your method of, you know, decompressing from 
what you experienced over there. And like I said, you you probably witnessed the absolute worst that humanity has to offer as far as being in a war zone. That's insane. It was pretty brutal. I mean, you whenever you're in a conflict zone, whether you know with an NGO or a part of the UN or a journalist or an observer, you see really amazing things from humanity, and you see some really terrible things from humanity, and uh, you know, trauma can manifest when you're either your brain sees something it's not ready to experience, or just from really prolonged exposure to to stress and high intensity things. And, uh, for me, I just need, I knew that what we did was something really great, but I needed to kind of extricate myself to be able to be able to respond in that way in the future. Um, you know, if you get burnt out from any activity, you need to take a step back and take a break occasionally. So, so fire was kind of like your, uh, decompression. Like you said, did you, if you don't mind me asking, did you seek any uh, professional help at all? You know, I tried to talk to therapists, but I didn't really fit in any of these specific communities that I was seeing. You know, I hadn't um, I hadn't participated in this conflict as a journalist fully or, you know, most of our medical team were former military. So I didn't really fit into that niche either. Um, And I had, you know, worked as a medical provider, but still had these different perspectives. And so, you know like a lot of people, I tended to just shut Pandora's box of emotions rather than uh, being able to open up and being a nurse specifically, it was really easy for me to rationalize things I was feeling or ways I was acting. And so, you know, can give all the right answers, but not necessarily do the the right things to get better. And I knew um, the best way that I could kind of reach an equilibrium again is to just turn back to like this physical activity that's kind of always been my brought me back to baseline it's running or hiking or something like that so yeah it's amazing how much like physical activity has an impact on your mental health it's pretty incredible and it looks like you're expert proof of that especially what you with you experienced over there in Iraq and uh, Yemen too and you were in Yemen too right yeah I was in Yemen as a journalist not as a nurse um, but covering conflict there from 2012 up until now I'm hoping to go back again sometime this year but that's a place I really care about. Yemen's amazing, um, but it's also a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Um, so take us a, take us through an average day. Like, what what did you? What was an average day for you like over there in Iraq? It would really vary, but pretty a uh, pretty standard day where we'd treat patients. Our organization would work side by side with the Iraqi medics, um, and in order to get close enough to patients to treat them, um, you know when you talk about trauma, normally you talk about the golden hour. Um, but we tried to really be close enough to treat people within the platinum 10 minutes, I guess is what they're calling it now. Um, so as each neighborhood was cleared, we would move closer as it was safe, you know, uh, and set up in empty houses, mosques on the roadside. We ended up in a, in a butcher shop at one point or a former butcher shop. Um, yeah, it worked well. The hooks on the wall we could use for IV bags. It's kind of grim. It was super grim, but you know, you got to develop that dark sense of humor. Uh, yeah, then every time we would get a mass casualty, we'd usually get a call that patients were coming in. We would split up into our teams and either have one provider to one patient, or if there were few enough, you could have multiple providers on one patient. Um, then you'd usually have the team lead coordinating 
um, which patients needed to be transferred out first to definitive care. Um, and because the transfer time was so long, you know, at the beginning of the battle, it was up to a five hour ambulance ride. And towards the end, it ended up being more like 15 to 30 minutes, depending on where we we're sending them. Um, usually they would just be in the back of the ambulance with family members riding along. Um, and that would go on day after day. Sometimes it would be a couple weeks with very few patients. And then sometimes we'd have a couple weeks where we'd get, you know, 30 to 50 people a day. Um, with a team of like three to 10 providers. Holy shit. And now were you, you're primarily working like C CCPs, right? Co uh, casualty collection points. Yeah. So the military calls them casualty collection points. Um, the world health organization doesn't like that term. Um, so they call them trauma stabilization points, but it's the exact same concept. Okay. And then you're working alongside, uh, were you guys working alongside the U S military as well or integrated with them at all? Or primarily we're, Iraqi? We're not integrated with them, but we would transfer the Iraqi casualties um, who needed treatment to them, to the coalition. Um, and they had a really rad team, so they were awesome. That's crazy. So how does that work with uh, as far as security goes, though? Like, that's one thing that kind of boggles my mind. What were you guys doing for security? So, I mean, this is a, um, sort of a... God, I'm losing my words. Sorry. Um, a difficult thing in the decision-making process for nonprofits. You know, a lot of them will say, oh, we need to be just accepted by the community to operate in an area. Some other groups who aren't considered, quote-unquote, humanitarian um, will have their own armed security. Um, but some like us, we just worked side-by-side -side with the Iraqi medics because they were part of the military. They could say to their colleagues, you know, okay, we need you guys to clear these streets and we know that they would protect us, um, if need be. Um, and there are a couple of times, you know, we were connected with people in intelligence, you know, like there's movements in this area, you guys need to move, pull back to this neighborhood for tonight. Um, and just whenever you're, <clears throat> whatever area you're operating in, just having good relationships with all players in the conflict is kind of paramount. So that's kind of crazy though, because like it, this is a this is a war zone, mm -hmm. and you're expected to go in there without with very little armament, of course, or none, or very little security team details. That's that's mind blowing to me. Yeah, I mean, it is it is kind of weird in the humanitarian realm that people are uh, they consider if you were to have armed whatever security that you're considered to be not partial or you're considered to be partial and impartiality and neutrality are some of the humanitarian principles that you're expected to uphold. So being able to make strategic decisions about what is best for your patient versus what, where you can land as an organization, it's just kind of like an ongoing conversation in the humanitarian area. That's wild because that, that must put a huge target on your back. You must be a target for uh, ISIS as well. I think it depends on the conflict heavily. You know, there are some like this, um, this war, it definitely worked to work side by side with the military because it was very unilateral. You know, you've got the quote unquote good guys on one side and then the bad guys on another. But there's plenty of other conflicts like in Yemen where it's got five, six plus different players where that definitely wouldn't work. Um, so, yeah, you just kind of have to have that conversation with your team about what works best in each given scenario.
I mean, did you guys have contingency uh, protocols or anything like that in case like there was a capture or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I can't share all of them, but we had people with good contacts throughout, um, you know, with the Iraqis, with local community leaders, with other NGOs, with um, with the coalition, etc. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Now, what about like enemy combatants? Did you have to treat enemy combatants, too? Yeah, we did. And we treated them like any other patient, you know, once they come through your door as a medical provider, you treat them and make sure, <clears throat> make sure that they're safe and well treated. Um, yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Cause you know, you hear stories from uh, some veterans of course, and they have a very, uh, which is understandable. They have a, an anger as well to the enemy combatants, but they still treat them to the same degree that they treat their own people. So mm -hmm. I was wondering what your point of view was on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was one of the very few people in our organization, at least in the beginning, that wasn't a veteran. Um, and I, I know all of our volunteers treated um, even the enemy combatants as patients. However difficult that might have been for them mentally or internally, that's kind of their own battle. But I know they were all, you know, in it to treat everybody for sure. They're in it for a good cause. Yeah, I understand. I just, yeah, I just, I could understand the, uh, the trepidation that you would have. No, I, bit combatant. I mean, especially if they, you know, may have like set off an IED or something like that and injured hundreds of civilians. I, I couldn't imagine oh. the rage that I would experience. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause we would treat, uh, it was about half and half soldiers and civilians. And so, you know, all of the civilians that were coming to us were injured by these enemy combatants. So having them come in. I'm not like super happy to see their face, but I'm still going to make sure that they're safe for sure. Understandable. So what about Yemen? What, what was Yemen all about? What did you do over there? You did the photojournalism, right? Yeah. Yemen was the first place I went as a photojournalist um, when I was just kind of getting, getting into the world of, of both. Um, I was just curious about it. I went to Jordan first cause I had studied abroad there in college and I heard about that Yemen was having an election kind of post Arab Spring and there were very few journalists there at the time. Um, and so that's where I went and where I kept going back to because I really fell in love with it. It's a super unique place. Nice. And uh, uh, what was like your primary mission over there? Just like general, general reporting. And now that the conflict has been going on there since 2015, um, I can't really live there anymore. Um, I used to be based there and live in the capital in Sanaa, uh, but now I try to go back at least once a year um, to kind of keep on reporting on the humanitarian situation and how it's changing politically and the trajectory of the country. So Nice. And now, so all this training that you have as a photojournalist, you're also a registered <laughs> nurse, and now you're a firefighter. And you still... <laughs> This is wild. So how does that all play together? Because I, I could see that and imagine that in the field, especially as a firefighter, that this yeah. intensive, you know, essentially combat medicine experience, I could see how that could be wildly beneficial for the boots on the ground out there. So how does that translate to where you are now? Yeah. So, I mean, fire was a totally different world for me. I was absolutely new to it. I grew up in Minnesota, but in the southwest corner. So um, if you go to northern Minnesota where we have forests, you know, there's like Smokies and ranger stations around there. But um, 
forestry, et cetera, and kind of the culture of fire that exists out West, I didn't grow up around that at all. Um, but as far as working in different regions and being in operational environments, I think that really helped me to just kind of understand the machinations behind fire in general um, and being able to like keep my head on a swivel and know how to act and react and um, how to work within the command structure. Um, but fire was like a whole new education for me. Absolutely. You know, pretty wild, it's, right? It's fun. <laughs> great. <clears throat> and again, there's been plenty of people on this podcast, like decades, way, way, way more experience than I have, but it was, I mean, fire has been an amazing part of my life so far. So well, that's a funny thing that you mentioned that though. Cause you know, the amount of experience that condensed into a short amount of years that you have, you know, I mean, w- that's arguably more valuable than, you know, 10 years of fire experience. I don't want to say it's more. I just want to say it's different. It's different. But I mean, don't, what I'm saying is don't sell yourself short as far as experience goes, because the knowledge and skills that you have in your back pocket are extremely valuable to the people that are out there in the, in the woods fighting fire. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it can be, you know, I like helping to train people in the medical side and hoping I can keep continue passing that on. Well, let's talk about it. So what are some things that you commonly see in the wildland that you can compare to your experiences in Iraq? Oh, man. Um, as far as training, not, I mean, it doesn't matter if you practiced on anybody like that, but there's, there's got to be some parallels there. I mean, working within kind of an operational structure, um, fire can be militaristic a little bit. I think there's plenty of comparisons between fire and the military, between incident command and military command, et cetera. Um, as far as injuries and medical, like I haven't seen too many injuries out on the fire line, luckily. Um, but I think we try to prepare for them well at the beginning of the year, you know, with medical refreshers and always keeping up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no plenty of people who have seen injuries out there, but it happens. It's yeah. yeah. good to have a background knowledge too, you know, some medical experience too. Cause you know, you never know when it's going to happen, but when it does, you're, if you're prepared for that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as the mental health thing, so you used, you, you experienced fire for the first time and it helped you greatly with your mental health from what you experienced in Iraq. Let's Mm -hmm. expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So I don't think it was necessarily the fire in in, in and of itself, but I was really, I think what I figured out what I was really seeking was kind of a strong community and a cohesive community where you, you know, work hard together, suffer together, you, you know, end up trusting each other and kind of becoming like family. And I was really, I've been really lucky where I ended up. Um, I don't think you can say like specific places or crews on the show, but it's in Idaho. You can say Um, the And I've only experienced. I wouldn't get too too specific. Yeah. I mean, it's on the sawtooth. Um, but, you know, the people I've worked with, I've worked some, with some of the the smartest people I've ever met in FIRE, some of the greatest Sawyers, some of, like, the most kind and understanding leaders. Um, and we're just kind of a weird, funny family. I like it. It's um, kind of funny how that happens. You just kind of fall into that FIRE family, essentially. No, it was amazing. And I'm on a small engine, so we're, like, working as a short crew most of the time. Um 
but I've really loved it. And it was kind of most of most people think of fire as like really chaotic and unstable. But compared to what I had been doing previously, this brought like a, an incredible amount of stability to my life to be able to like go out and work hard and focus on these skills and learning something new um, and just, just get kind of grounded again, I guess. Nice. And do you plan on continuing with fire or are you going to start doing some more nursing domestically here? Uh, I'm hoping I can go back. Um, I'm planning, I'm planning to go back next year, but I'm always kind of considering the different options because right now I've been able to balance it, you know, do fire in the summer. I'm just about to start a new nursing contract on Monday. Um, that lasts for, they'll last for three months. Um, and then I'll do some reporting in the spring. Um, that is just kind of contingent on whether I can get my reporting done. And luckily people in my forest are like, you know, we love to have you around. We're happy to have you back, but we understand if you have other life things going on and stuff, but yeah, fire is awesome. So I hope it can come back. Nice. And what are you going to be reporting on? Can you even say, or? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm trying to go back to Yemen in this winter. Um, try and be there for about a month just continuing on the humanitarian situation the political changes in the south um and then hopefully i'll be back in iraq as well i've got a couple story ideas so Ooh, care to share <laughs> i can't share all the details on those but because they're not even pitched yet but gotcha yeah be in the region that's pretty wild man so as far as like the ethics go for uh being over there like what was you what what did you experience over there um as far as medical ethics or reporting both let's go on both i mean medical medical ethics the biggest challenge for us was that constant argument between groups who believe you shouldn't work side by side with other military medics and groups who saw it as necessary um you know, there's the humanitarian ideals of uh, neutrality, impartiality, independence, and humanity. Um, but what a lot of people don't get is that they're not, I mean, you try to make them as hard and fast rules as you can. But for us, like the biggest thing to take into account is humanity. If you're giving up humanity, if you're not being able to treat people to just hold up these really stringent rules, then why are you even in that field? It's kind of self-defeating at that point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as far as Mosul, we saw a lot of groups just kind of sit back and, and think and think and think and argue like, can we go in there? Is that ethical? Is that impartial? Is that neutral? Well, you know, there's like thousands of people dying. So we're just like, we're going to try and find this middle ground and operate as, you know, openly and transparently as we can and treat as many people as we could. Um, yeah, that, that was the main thing for that. Um, and as far as reporting, I mean, the biggest thing that I take try to take into consideration when I report is just showing people in a light that they would want themselves shown, you know, not in a way that's exploitative, or with a self-serving agenda, you know, everyone has their own preconceived notions and perspectives um, on a topic they're reporting on. Um, but I just try to 
um, show things as they are and kind of build bridges. You know, I grew up in a super small town, um, very not diverse. Most people were not super well-traveled, um, but I try to bring stories from other places back to places like my hometown to just kind of, it sounds a little bit hokey, but like increase understanding. Um, so I think a big reason for the political climate today is that people are not well informed and they are become afraid of each other. And that leads to a whole nother can of worms. There's definitely an element of xenophobia that I've noticed recently in the past, you know, few years, probably what I want to say over the course of 10 years of my life. And so, and I think that what you're doing over there with the reporting and what you've done, uh, humanitarian as a humanitarian aspect, I think that's wonderful. And if you can bring those stories back, it might open up people's eyes and say, Hey, these, these people are just people. They're just trying to make a living like you and I over here. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what I try to show. You know, I have some of my best friends in the world are from Yemen and Iraq and like people I've gone through intense things with. And I, you know, still check in with translators and fixers and drivers and their families and how their kids are doing. And, um, I've really tried to bring back those experiences to like my families and or my family and friends back home. So. That's crazy. I mean, I'm sure you've got tons of stories to tell. Any any uh, particular story that stands out that you want to share on the podcast? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was like two weeks ago. I called one of my friends in Yemen and his whole family was over for a Friday, Friday lunch, kind of like our Sunday brunch, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all FaceTimed, like me and his sisters and his mom and his dad. And <clears throat> that was just really special because um, I used to go over to their house every Friday when I lived there. So things like that. Well, that you, got, you have family in other countries, like pretty much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's cool. So what was the reactions for uh, Did you ever happen to meet any of the patients that you've treated uh, over there, like after you've like helped them? Almost never, but there was one, um, and I say almost never because, you know, we'd treat them and we'd transport them back to a different city, and then they'd end up in a hospital, and there's really the data tracking mechanisms for that is abysmal. There's almost nothing, or at least there wasn't for um, that battle. Um, But six months after Mosul ended, um, I was reporting on something else in a different city, um, just about... Um, kids who were recovering from the trauma and experiences, et cetera. Um, and this kid walks into the hotel where we're supposed to interview him. And he, I recognized him from one of our photos. Um, he had come out of the old city of Mosul, like totally emaciated, starving, injured. Um, we had a couple photos of him being carried to the ambulance. And I was like, oh my God, now he's like totally healthy. I don't want to say totally happy because he was absolutely like he was definitely dealing with trauma, but he'd been reunited with his uncle and some of his siblings. And that was just like gave me the chills because <laughs> awesome. that never happens. So that's got to be extraordinarily fulfilling for you. Yeah, because that's kind of one hard thing as a provider in an emergency setting, you know, and you work in the ER in the States, you might know, okay, this patient we treated at least got up to the floor and they're stable, their family's with them, et cetera. But for this, it was kind of like wrap, strap and go and you never see him again. So that was pretty extraordinary. Oh, man. It's, uh, that's insane. So you're treating gunshot wounds, barrow trauma, you know, burns, all that nature. And that, that takes, that's one incredible human to be able to do that in a nonprofit 
NGO context. I just want to say that's that's awesome that what you're doing over there. Oh, thank you. We're trying. We've got a couple more responses going now, but definitely not to that extent. That was, you know, on one level, you're like that was an amazing, but awful experience, and it was provides you with a huge amount of medical experience. But on the same level, you're like, I never want anything like that to happen again. Obviously. Yeah. So there's no question in your mind. You're never going to go back and do it again. Oh, no, I just mean I wouldn't ever want that to happen because I wouldn't want it to happen to the people living there. I understand. Um, if, if we had the capacity to respond to something like that and the funding to respond to something like that again, then absolutely. So. Okay. And now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you kind of helped organize this NGO to go over there, correct? Uh, so when I went there it was just kind of a group of ragtag medics and they were organized through another Slovak nonprofit um, who are still our friends today um, but when we realized we'd need larger funding I helped found our actual organization that still exists today um, but there were plenty of guys there prior to when I got there so so it's still operational today it is yeah we've got a um, we've got a medical clinic going on the border in Matamoros, kind of where the asylum seekers are camped out. Um, and then we're potentially uh, trying to respond to uh, northeast Syria, what's going on there. But that's kind of still under wraps and raising money for. So Yeah, can't talk about it too much, I understand. Oh, good. <laughs> that's awesome. So now you met your boyfriend over in Iraq. I did, yeah. He was Tell one of the medics. Um, <clears throat> so he's another one who's kind of healed through nature, etc. He's a former Marine infantryman um, who had deployed to Afghanistan. But then when he got out, he went to Jackson, Wyoming, and went, worked as a ski instructor for three years. So kind of how I went to fire and nature, he went to skiing in nature and that was like sort of his healing mechanism. Um, but he's also an EMT, um, and has experience with trauma. So he decided in 2015 to go to Iraq and, um, start some trauma training projects. Um, so he and that Slovak group were the first ones to respond to kind of the battles prior to Mosul actual happening. Um, and I saw an article on them in the Washington Post. I Facebooked them, and he was just like, hey, and then didn't respond for another two weeks. He's out <laughs> um, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yep. Um, then we eventually, I went out with them one day, and I thought what was going to be one week turned into the whole year. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. Like, a little story about love blossoming out of a battlefield, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like pretty weird, like movie fairy tale ish, but it's how it happened. Dude, so. I don't know, man. Looking at your story and listening to your story, it kind of seems almost movie esque. So it's it's pretty wild. <laughs> and then I drug him out to Idaho. So he was he I shouldn't say I drug him, and he voluntarily came out to Idaho and spent the summer fly fishing while I was doing fire the first summer. So. I was just about to ask that. Let me guess. He just sat there and fly fish and just lived it up. Yeah, I think he was a little lonely sometimes when I was out on assignment, but he found like a good community out there too. So, um. so when you were over there in Iraq too, um, did you happen to, or did you get to train a lot of the uh, 
the combat medics over there or any of the uh, Iraq uh, friendlies? So that was the main thing that my partner um, started out doing before I was there. They were helping to train the Kurdish military um, in trauma, TCCC, tactical combat casualty care. Um, and then we would run through um, some skills and workshops with our Iraqi counterparts as well. But that's a big thing we're trying to develop with our nonprofit now, our training programs. Because, you know, it's not really useful if you go into an area and respond and provide this care if you're just going to leave people with no way to help themselves in the future. Um, so we're developing some trauma training modules um, that we hope we can take with us everywhere we go. That's awesome. So you're going into these uh, places and essentially leaving it better than you found it. You're just doing something that they could save lives. That's awesome. We're trying to. I mean, it doesn't always end up the way that you want it to, but even if you can train one group of people um, and train them to be trainers of others, um, I think that's the best way to go about operations, honestly. That's awesome, man. That, that's really, that's a special thing that you're doing. It is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well cool man um so yeah i mean did you get that going back to the fire thing did you have to get on to any fires this year any good ones um this year was pretty slow just yeah. like for everybody else yeah uh, that's kind of a commonality between the everybody that i've talked to this season it's been pretty slow um i did get to fill out my ic5 task book so that was super fun uh, i really yeah. liked to roll on smaller fires um I don't know. We, even though it was a small one, the last one that I was on was probably the coolest. It was just outside of, um, outside of Ketchum. Oh, I just said Ketchum. Anyway, it was in the mountains, we had like a three mile hike in like 3000 foot elevation gain. And it was a hunter called in fire. He's like, Oh, it's somewhere up there near the top. So we, we drug our asses up there and sat and looked for it, looked for it. And it was like one o'clock and nothing's popping up. And then all of a sudden at two, it's like, poof, it's halfway down the ridge that we had just hiked up. Um, Uh-oh. So we got to call in a helicopter, do some bucket drops, got a few more crew members up there. Um, yeah, that was a cool one. I, I like, I honestly like the initial attack and smaller fires um, just as well as the campaign ones. See, I, I, I don't know. I'm at the point in my career where I'm like, all right, big campaign fire. Yeah, they're fun and everything like that. But I am a huge fan of what I like to call the four-day fire. Where you, oh, yeah. yeah, that's like, that's like my jam right there. So you get, you hike in or you get flown into a remote fire out in the middle of nowhere and you just sit out there and camp for four days and you just do your yeah. thing, mop it up. Everything's good to go. That's my favorite type of firefighting right there. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Well, sweet man. I think that might be the tie-in point unless you got anything else to add. Yeah, no, this is awesome. Thanks for talking. Yeah. Thanks uh, for sharing your story. Yeah, for sure. Keep up the podcast. I love listening. So you've had some awesome people on. Keep up the humanitarian efforts. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. So there you go, guys. Yeah. Um, where can we find you on the socials? Uh, all my social media personally is just my name, Alex K. Potter. Um, and if you want to find our organization, it's called Global Response Management. Um, if you just Google that, it'll, you know, all of our social media will pop up too. Nice. And now... At the end of the show, what I usually like to do is give you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie, hero, or a mentor. So, <laughs> yeah, do I as just many say, as you want. We can go on forever with this. No, I'll just say like all my homies on the Sawtooth, they're awesome. So, all right, on shout out to the Sawtooth. Well, Alex, 
It's an incredible story. It's an incredible journey. And you kind of found healing through fire and nature. And <laughs> you met your boyfriend in a war zone. Damn. That's that's insane. That's that's cool. <laughs> well, anyways, what yeah. I'm saying is like not a lot of people have a story as unique as yours. And uh, maybe you should uh, write uh, reach out to the Smoky Generation and they could uh, maybe facilitate some of your storytelling. Yeah, that would be sweet. Yeah, I'll put you in contact with Bethany. She's awesome. Cool. Thank you. Well, right on, dude. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. I love an epic story. Ladies and gentlemen, that was episode number 19 of the Anchor Point podcast with Alex Potter. Alex, you got a you got an amazing story. That's that's incredible what you've done and yet you did all that overseas in the Middle East and you came still you still came back and fought fire here domestically. That's pretty wild. You're still nursing, you're still writing, you're still doing the photojournalism thing and you have uh, some future contracts going out there as well. I think that's epic. Alex, thanks for being on the show. If you guys happen to be interested in volunteering for Global Response, head over to www.globalresponse.org and uh, be a part of that amazing team and, well, quite frankly, do something that's you know beneficial for humanity. Help uh, some people in need and do something that's greater than yourself. Check them out on Twitter, too. They also have an Instagram, so uh, go check them out, Global Response is the name of that nonprofit. They're also doing a fundraiser, so uh, they're doing a fundraiser for their Syria trip. Go over to Facebook, and I'll uh, post that link in the show notes. So, once again, guys, thanks for sharing the podcast, sharing your epic photos and your epic videos of the fire season. I'll continue to do so over the winter. Keep sharing your guys' story. And uh, just a shout-out to you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for all your support with Anchor Point Podcast. If you guys have the time, be sure to swing by iTunes and uh, check us out and write us a review. I deeply appreciate it. Hope everyone's getting comfortable with their winter routine. Hope everybody takes care. Thanks, guys.